Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today's October 1st, 2021, and for us FDA wonks, it's the first day of fiscal year 2022. Unfortunately, the turnover of the calendar did not create a clean slate as far as FDA's activities go. Several issues continue to linger, not the least of which is the coronavirus pandemic. Our first story today is on the ongoing regulatory and development challenge that is the coronavirus vaccines. Sarah, you wrote an interesting story about an issue that continues to bubble up but probably needs to be talked about more, and that is the search for correlates of protection. Yeah, I've sort of been interested in this um, for a while because um, early on this year before he left FDA, Stephen Hahn said, you know, they were kind of getting really close to this and they should be able to find one. and um, I think most virologists and people um, experiencing the vaccine space are actually not particularly surprised that we don't have a clear correlate right now because oftentimes it's just sort of impossible to do this for many vaccines, even though we'd like to. Um, the idea is like if we could find, you know, kind of a, a laboratory marker we can measure in people um, and kind of avoid having to do um, long, large, efficacy safety studies um you know if we could just you know measure um people's blood after they get the vaccine and say okay if you have this you know level of antibody titers um you know you are likely protected by the vaccine or so forth um but i thought it was interesting because pfizer at um two meetings looking at its booster shot um basically said that so far from what they're looking at um, they haven't really been able to come up with a clear antibody threshold, and people have really been focusing on neutralizing antibodies as the likely correlate if there is one. And, um, you know, they made some other comments and indications that um, it just may be more complicated <laughs> than just simply looking at it. And um, like I said, that has ramifications for not just Pfizer potentially, but all, you know, COVID vaccine developers in terms of how fast you could get a new vaccine approved, um, you know, how fast you could modify vaccines and so forth. Um, and certainly a lot of people in the booster debate wanted, would have been more comfortable making decisions on the data they had if there was a clear correlate of protection. Um, although, you know, people I talked to said, there is a distinction between sort of using a correlate and doing immunogenicity studies. So there is ways, there are ways to do immunogenicity studies that still help kind of speed up um, the development process um, without having a clear correlate of protection. Um, the other thing I thought was sort of interesting in talking to some, you know, experts in the vaccine space, particularly John Moore um, at Weill Cornell, was that he felt like, you know, if there is a correlate and if there is, again, you know, he thinks like it's clear it's something around these neutralizing antibodies that it's kind of likely more useful to in thinking about like measuring the initial protectiveness of a vaccine series. Because when you, um, we know that sort of as your, your antibodies do fade at some point and as that happens, um, other components of your immune system take over. So you know, I guess his point is like thinking about, you know, the role of declining antibodies and the need for boosting just in his mind may not be 
the right approach regardless of um, potentially a proven correlate. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I I I really I was really fascinated by the kind of the idea that, and you know, me not being a scientist, this is the way I would prefer it, which is here's the line. If you're over the line, you don't need a booster. If you're under the line, you do need a booster. It, it's so very simple, and yet we can't seem to get there. It's more like a range, <laughs> you know, which doesn't help anybody because you don't know where you know. You know where in the range is is good and and where where is bad. I mean, so I mean, you know, we're we're trying to make decisions about whether who needs to be boosted, when we need to get a booster, if we need to get a booster. I mean, you know, how does this how, how does this kind of play into that? I mean, does this does it make it tougher? Does it you know just is it just like one less thing that you know people kind of have to rely on here or you know or look at? I guess right. I mean, I guess for a lot of people. Um, it does say that, you know, you can't just look at patterns of waning antibodies and say necessarily conclusively it's time to boost. And that's because as much as, you know, you said that, you know, it would be nice if we had that clear cutoff. It's also good that we have these, these more complicated immune systems that have sort of <laughs> multiple, you know, we have multiple layers of protection. We have these memory um, B and T cells that also kick in. But and I think this has um, been sort of a, de a debate and kind of harder to communicate to the public is that there are some vaccines, right, where we sort of achieve what people call like sterilizing immunity, which is like, you know, basically like it's not just that, you know, we prevent people from really getting seriously sick or even sick with the disease. We really prevent people from getting infected. And what a lot of people are saying right now is that these just aren't the types of vaccines that are going to ever, um, they don't think we were at that kind of ability to create that situation. That would be wonderful and ideal, right? Because it just really cuts down on transmission and so forth. But so what some people are kind of saying is like, we just, we may need to sort of rethink um, our goals because we're never going to be able to reach that threshold of preventing all infections. But we know that even when we get infected with these vaccines, the vaccines are really great. And I think that's like the the tr the like tension going on right now is there are people in the administration, I think like Anthony Fauci and maybe even the CDC director that are really focused right now on figuring out like, let's try and prevent as many infections as we can in the US and other people that are basically saying that's kind of like chasing an impossible goal, particularly when you have these dynamics of so many unvaccinated people in the U.S. and world that a lot of people want them to focus on. Mm -hmm. Sarah, when we talk about, uh, you know, sort of acknowledging that we're not going to end the pandemic so much as sort of manage it into an endemic, uh, what is the stuff that you found out about uh, um, correlates of protection uh, mean for, you know, sort of the, the ongoing development of uh, COVID vaccines. I know at uh, one point there was uh, a lot of talk about, you know, treating COVID like flu in terms of sort of kind of, you know, maybe it's something we get every year and the, you know, stuff is sort of kind of tweaked uh, um, annually and so forth. Is is that, uh, does that mean that sort of we can't uh, approach it in this way or uh, um, is there anything about sort of kind of what this, uh, what this means long term? No, I don't have a great answer for that. I know at the advisory committee, um, at the C, I think it was at the CDC one, but it was um, FDA sort of piped in and was 
sort of indicated we're definitely not at that um, flu approach yet um, in terms of how they're able to change it. But I think there's an even more basic question that's still unanswered now, which is, is this a disease where people are going to need annual or regular boosting? Or is it just that this should have been a three-shot vaccine, right, to begin with? Um, and so that's a really unanswered question. Like I said sort of earlier, even in absence of correlates, of a clear correlate of protection, FDA and other um, regulators around the globe have indicated flexibility to use um, other types of immunobridging studies to, um, you know, update vaccines and modify them. And even now that we have so many available vaccines and it's hard to do placebo-controlled studies to, you know, even get new vaccines cleared. So um, I think a correlate would be, seems like it'd be really, really nice to have, but it's not um, as detrimental maybe in some cases. But yeah, there's still obviously, like um, I said, there's nobody really knows yet whether you know we're going to be needing boosters over the long term for COVID or not so yeah this you know as you you know those listening could probably tell i mean you know we sarah writes about this all the time and you know we're we're having trouble kind of understanding where we go from here so you, know, you can imagine the communications issues that continue to come up and we continue to talk about but you know something else you know uh, another something else noted by our um, by Mike McCann in a in a story for us this week was about the ACIP recommendation on booster shots and how I mean, it was one thing I noticed was that they he made clear to say that they were that this was a uh, you know kind of based on current knowledge and you know kind of made the you know the idea that kind of this could change as we go forward and we learn more and you know you hear that you hear a lot of that you know, going on, I think that just is unsettling with people. But, you know, unfortunately, that's the kind of the way the science has worked. And, you know, kind of we just have to kind of, I guess, you know, uh, you just uh, agree that this is, you know, we're get, there's going to be changes and, and holes and, and people aren't going to understand some things right away and so forth. Yeah, I think there was a lot of concern at the ASIP meeting last week that uh, among the members that they were, you know, by voting on these booster recommendations, they were essentially locking themselves in place. And that's where the, the CDC staff kept saying, no, these are going to be interim, you know, interim recommendations and we will revisit them with more data. But for now, based on the data in front of you, this is what we're proposing. So I think that was just a giant series of caveats by CDC. Yeah, and obviously, you know, that's like sort of brought up this whole an, an, another debate, which is kind of like, when do you act in a pandemic? Do you wait for perfect data or do you, um, as I think CDC Director Walensky said, you have to acknowledge that, again, you're in an emergency situation, you're never going to have all of the data probably that you want to make a decision, but for better or worse, somebody is charged with making a decision anyway, and not making a decision can cause harm as well. And, you know, so there, I think there are people um, on different sides of whether, you know, now was really that critical time where a decision had to be made or not. And, um, you know, whether they really had, um, had enough or reasonable data to make a good call. Yeah, I guess by sort of saying it, that 
they're making this decision that means that they're satisfied with the data um, as opposed to uh, making another decision may, may mean that they are unsatisfied with the data. So it's just a, it's a, another way of looking at it. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. And, you know, again, I mean, we've said this, I can't remember how many times we've said it on this podcast, you have to kind of, you have to kind of be patient with, with, with the science as, you know, we learn more, we certainly know more today about the vaccines than we did last fall when they, you know, when, when they first, you know, when the, um, the data first came out, the first clinical trials were done. So, you know, it, it it's a, uh, it, it, it seems like a slow kind of slog, but we're we're getting there. We're getting slowly but surely we're getting there. People just kind of have to be patient, I think. <laughs> Next up, we're going to look closer at a comment from Oncology Center of Excellence Director Rick Pazder about the number of expedited pathways at the FDA. Pazder, Pazder said the time has come for what he called simplifying the expedited pathways at the at the agency. He envisioned expedited pathways such as an early breakthrough that would trigger more sponsor involvement with FDA staff and a late breakthrough that would streamline the assessment phase for the application. Um, he said the agency may want to consider focusing on the core messages of the, ex of the expedited pathways instead of just having a long list of them, I guess. So, uh, you know, you, you, for the panel, you guys have all, you know, like I have are very familiar with the litany of ways that you can get a, get an application, you know, through the approval process quicker than standard review. Um, it, do you think that Pazder is right in that there are too many expedited programs and that, as he said, the only people who understand all the requirements and nuances of the of the de various designations are the industry regulatory departments? By the way, I put us in that bucket, too, as the people who know the requirements. Um, yeah, so I what what do you think? I mean, you know, should we cut it down to you know one or two? Just say this is the expedited pathway, and or this is the early expedited pathway and the late expedited pathway. So I covered the Friends of Cancer Research meeting where um, Pazder made those comments, and this issue also came up at a, a Friends meeting about a year ago, where they started talking about streamlining these pathways. And it's if you if you look at all the pathways, you know, in a and a table or on a sheet of paper, there's a lot there and there's a lot of overlap. And mm -hmm. FDA's beef is that it creates a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of paperwork and a lot of time for them to process the request for designation under each of these pathways. So I think there is, um, you know, sort of a, a bureaucratic wish to streamline and also um, to make them more useful. I mean, do you really need both fast track and breakthrough? Do you really need both breakthrough and RMAP for the same product? You know, when you look at it like that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, Rick Pastor said himself that he thinks fast track is, is essentially outdated. It's been around for 20 some years at this point. So I think there is a desire by the agency to make these pathways more efficient and more productive. However, I'm not sure how eager industry is going to be to get rid of some of these. As Mike McCann pointed out in his story, you know, you often see press releases from companies announcing we've got, you know, orphan drug designation or we've got prior or priority review designation or fast track designation. Well, especially for some of these smaller companies, they, you know, may not be able to tout those as frequently if you start to kind of simplify the pathways. 
Well, yeah, we we all remember back when Breakthrough was created back in 2012. Those press releases like were generating significant stock you know, pops because they would just say, we're a breakthrough product. And it was like, ooh, and like everybody got all excited about that. And I think it was Rick Pazder who had to come out and say, like, we're not your investment consultant. <laughs> you know, we're just, this is just a designation and that's what it's called. <laughs> and then there's also been, you know, concerns raised. I've heard concerns raised by both OCE and CBER officials saying, you know, especially in those early days of breakthrough and the early days of Arma, you know, a company gets its designation and they announce it in a press release and then FDA never hears from that company again. <laughs> or, you know, basically not not in a near term period of time, which is the whole idea, right? The whole idea is increased interactions and, and a lot more proactive help from the agency in terms of your drug development program. And if you're a company that doesn't follow up on a breakthrough designation or an RMAT designation, well, you're not really benefiting other than by being able to tout it in your press release. Yeah, I'm often uh, amused by the uh, the use of the term novel, uh, you know, by by companies. Uh, it's really not as uh, uh, perhaps as uh, um, uh, exciting as uh, the, uh, the the breakthrough designation, but sort of kind of there's, you know, a debate about for kind of if a company calls it novel you know it's not because fda has designated a novel it means that they they think it's special uh, even if it's not going to sort of going to get enemy uh, status by a uh, by the, uh, the regulator i think uh, you know sue you and mike have uh, really sort of uh, um uh, sort of put the nail on the head there in terms of sort of kind of what's going to uh, happen with the pathways implication that uh, you know if fda wants to get rid of this stuff i think they're really gonna have to make the con case to congress that it is in fact slowing things down that sort of kind of you know we have to you know devote this many ftes or you know uh this many dollars to these various uh program designations and uh, you know if we could spend that money actually for kind of uh, reviewing drugs faster or developing more guidance or something like that it would be uh, better for uh, um, you know product development and uh, unless they make that case I don't think they're going to uh, be able to uh, persuade Congress uh, that the simplification is actually in uh, um, in the cards. I would agree with you Matt because some of these are you know built into the statute at this point and also I think that there's just going to be I think that's going to be a hard case to make to Congress and they're going to encounter opposition from some industry and from some patient groups frankly who will see it as oh well you're you know reducing our options for trying to get these medicines quicker you know I, th I also think it's going to be a th hard thing to explain to people frankly not that the current system is easy to understand <laughs> to a layperson or or to somebody who actually covers this stuff. But. Yeah, I, the, the the first time you you hear about a case where somebody says, "Well, I would have gotten fast. I was I was a, you know qualified for fast track designation, but now that you've gotten rid of it, I get I get nothing." You know, I mean, that'll be you know the headline for you know for all the the congressional hearings or briefings or whatever it is that they that they. Uh, you know to, that they would do on something like this but yeah it it's going to be really hard to take away things like perceived perks <laughs> i think finally today we're going to take a look at new fda guidance on the use of real world data in regulatory decisions so you found that the agency is asking a lot from sponsors who want to use claims and ehr data to show drug effectiveness Yes, so uh, draft guidance came out earlier this week, and if I could sum up FDA's message to industry in four, four words, it would be, quote, know your data source. Um, the guidance 
And this just focused on sort of assessing e-health records and medical claims data for use in terms of regulatory submissions. And FDA really emphasizes the need to prove that the data source you want to use is fit for purpose in terms of being able to answer the research question at issue. Sponsors have to show they have a really good understanding of what data are captured in that particular um, database and what info is not going to be in there. And they need to have a plan in place ahead of time to deal with the expected gaps in the data. The agency also emphasizes the need to pre-specify everything about the study design and the analysis in a protocol that should ideally be submitted to the agency before the study is conducted. Uh, FDA officials have long expressed concerns about sponsors cherry-picking um, observational study data that suits their needs after the fact. So they want to see everything upfront ahead of time. And not that this should surprise anybody who's been following FDA's actions in, in terms of adoption of real-world data, um, but they lay it out very clearly that they expect sponsors to meet a very high bar. Sponsors also have to describe the historical experience with the use of a selected data source for research purposes in their protocol. And um, FDA also goes on to say that some endpoints are just not going to be well suited to capture in an EMR or health claims database. Um, such as outcomes that are subjective in nature or scaled in nature, like, say, worsening depression symptoms. Those are not likely to be well characterized or captured. In contrast, outcomes with well-defined diagnostic criteria, such as a myocardial infarction, are more likely to be consistently captured. But then... So I, I, one thing I thought was funny is even though they say that then at the end of your story, you talk about how something which is is pretty concrete in my mind as death is yeah. not yeah. <laughs> can't you can't really use this data for well either right that is like you one of my to. biggest annoyances with this is that right. we can't measure death we still can't measure death it often <laughs> is not captured in electronic health records right so fda says you know to make sure you're not excluding somebody who died and you know you're not just characterizing them as not seeking further care you've got a bridge to some other databases, you know, um, vital statistics databases, that sort of thing. And FDA wants to see the plan ahead of time for how you're going to do that. I, I can just I can just see people writing into protocols that we're going to have we're going to have people doing like online searches of obituaries in addition to checking all these other databases to make there, sure that has happened. Um, yeah, I know. I know that's one of the things they yes. do. Because yeah. there's no there's no death database anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I covered a Zarelto trial years ago where they had to try to go back and follow up on everybody who was in the trial who they didn't have um, any data on at the end of the trial. And they were doing searches, you know, not just death databases and death indexes, but, you know, online searches for obituaries. Yeah, I think I listened to an FDA um, kind of organized webinar. Uh, I you know, sometime in the past year or so where they had some folks, I think, at outside organizations talking about these like complicated algorithms and processes they developed to kind of, you know, verify they were accurately kind of capturing death and um, 
real world data. And I, I, I just, I, I think about that a lot because if it's that hard to use these kind of resources to capture a very concrete outcome. Now, again, as you sort of mentioned, Sue, it's, some of it is just that we don't capture it there. <laughs> but um, it just, it's, it's hard to believe we can, you know, use this data for other more subjective um, information. Well, supposedly, the, there, there is a, a federal, I think it's a federal database that actually does, is pretty accurate with tracking deaths, but it's so far behind in terms of because they have to, they have to collect all the data and it, it you know, they, it takes so long to update that it's like, by the time you see it, it's like a year old or something. So it's, you know, it's really hard to kind of, to use like in a clinic, like in a clinical trial type of setting. But yeah, I'd. I, I yeah I I don't know uh, <laughs> but that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast is my experience about how we can't measure death. Um, so, I mean the so way you, I look at this 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 guidance is it provides a roadmap roadmap for sponsors who are interested in using electronic health record data and medical claims based data, but it's a steep road to climb up <laughs> to meet FDA's expectations in my opinion. That's that's what I was going to ask is if, you know, I mean, we've all been kind of waiting for for more kind of clarity on how they want to use because everyone that's like the new in vogue thing is to use real world evidence to support regulatory decisions. And I mean, is, is this hard? Is this going to make it harder than people probably thought it was going to be? I think the companies who have been actively interacting with FDA on this subject no, are, are familiar with the agency's high expectations. But I think for, you know, those companies who just look at this as sort of, you know, a golden opportunity to use real world data instead of doing a more formal, um, prospectively designed clinical trial, you know, this is not a magic bullet. Oh, one thing I thought was interesting is you, you, your story talks a little bit about like international sources of data because I think we, you know, most people know that a lot of um, countries that have more nationalized healthcare systems end up with much better um, records that can, you know, often do make for better research in the U.S. But yet for FDA's purposes, that may not just be appropriate or generalizable to the audience or to the audience, to FDA, you know, to the American population. And that seems like a big a big issue if the U.S. sort of had some of the record keeping in healthcare that some of these European countries might have. It seems like it would be a lot easier. But I, I mean, I know from personal experience that you know having different medical providers, you know, in all different kind of healthcare, private healthcare systems using different electronic medical records. Sometimes, like you go back to a doctor and you realize how outdated the information they have on you is, and you know it doesn't get cross-populated um and so forth so um i think that's like a big stumbling block that i'm not really sure the pharma industry or fda really has a lot of ability to fix on their own no they don't they don't and that's constantly cited as a challenge when it comes to gathering real world data in the us and yes in some other countries you know with nationalized healthcare systems their their ability to track some of these things is is much better and much more consistent but fda wants you know if you're using non-us data sources fda wants an explanation 
on how sort of various factors about the healthcare system and practices of prescribing uh, in that particular country and what formulations are used in that country. They want all of this explained as to how it's going to affect the generalizability of the study results to the U.S. population. So that's yet another hurdle for anybody who's looking to look to go outside the U.S. for this data. I might uh, take a, a glass half full of, uh, approach to the uh, um, to the guidance. You know, I think you're absolutely right, Stu, that it is a very high bar. But uh, you know, as is the uh, FDA's bar for clinical data itself, and I think. Uh, the agency is saying here uh, that basically sort of kind of we want uh, you know we want everything that can be measured from uh, real world data to be uh, to be included just like they do with uh, um, clinical data from uh, um, controlled trials and you know the, the the good part of that is is you can sort of come up with a uh, you know rigorous uh, data set in a real world setting that you should be able to do as much with it in terms of sort of getting regulatory approval as you could with a uh, controlled clinical trial. So if uh, you know if through kind of a data mining techniques or for kind of just sort of uh, um, interoperability advanced. I think it, it's, it bodes well for uh, companies being able to uh, to use their real world uh, evidence to uh, to get the uh, real claims on uh, um, on labeling in a very consistent manner that they can't do uh, can't do right now. And I also uh, wanted to uh, um, uh, note that I was uh, um, maybe this is sort of the, the a glass uh, half empty uh, Comment, but sort of that you you noted that that the FDA wants to make sure that they uh, that sponsors will kind of match the uh, the source to the question, not the question to the data source, which I kind of uh, a little surprised about. I thought like, well, if you have this data source and you can only uh, you know, look at a f you know certain things with it, why not go ahead and look at those things? But uh, FDA wants you to start with the question as opposed to starting with the data, and uh, that sort of seems not as a, um, not as sort of kind of a, um, you know development friendly to uh, to me. Well, I mean, just like in a clinical trial, <laughs> you're going to design a clinical trial to test a certain hypothesis. So you're designing that trial around the hypothesis, not vice versa. Sure, that's a good point. That's a, yes, that's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you waited until after you, you know, after you got all the data back to decide what you want to look for, that's a, what is, I forget the name of that, but it's like type two error of some kind of bias. I can't remember what it's called, but. It's a big no-no. Yes, as it's a big no-no. <laughs> and one <What>? easily caught. <laughs> one thing I was thinking of when Matt made his um, half glass, half full comment was um, going back to the story, um, Mike, we talked about from Mike McCann on boosters, I think um, COVID boosters earlier, and Sue's written a bit about this, but, you know, he, he mentioned, he talks about at the end how the Israeli um, real world evidence data on Pfizer boosters became for FDA or seemed to be had, I mean, it, it was a big kind of backbone in how the U.S., um, kind of made its decision for boosters here. And of course, I think at the um, the FDA presentation, there was, um, or advisory panel, there was one presenter who basically stood up and talked for probably 20, 30 minutes about all the problems with that data. But at the end of the day, it's um, without it and without the case made by it, it's hard to see the US, um, you know, having that booster cleared right now. Of course, there's other factors going on here since, um, you know, there were people outside of the FDA who I think bought into that data that impacted what FDA and other health officials do. So perhaps, you know, sort of a unique circumstance 
um, that may not be replicated in non-pandemic situations, but I think that certainly is interesting to point out. But if you read the decision memorandum from FDA um, authorizing the boosters in that selected population, it does not rely on the Israeli data. It references it. It says this has not been reviewed comprehensively by FDA, and it drops it at that. Right. <laughs> so I mean, that was the weird thing about the advisory committee, I think, preview documents, too, from FDA, is that they sort of indicated they didn't, um, right, didn't take mm-hmm. di- or didn't independently verify some of the data and so forth as well. But I mean, it's it's hard for me to see how the U.S. could have justified their booster decision without the knowledge they gained from Israel. It's certainly what every every White House official or Fauci and the people outside of the FDA have have used to um, base their arguments for needing boosters down on. I agree. And it certainly was brought up at the ASIP meeting, too, even though if even if there was a sense that, well, the Israeli data is still kind of rather immature at this point. Maybe the idea then is you could, you know, if you're using ex-US data, like real, ex-US real world data, say from Israel or the UK, then that just streamlines the development program in the US. If you, you know, if you can, if you can show like a, what you need to show with, you know, Israeli UK data, then you can just enroll a smaller trial with US patients if you wanted to do, you know, if you wanted to go that route and you just get, you could get things done a lot faster because you have the backstop of the the real world data, assuming it's verifiable and all that kind of stuff. Well, there actually was an issue with the generalizability of the Israeli data to the U.S. population, because in Israel, they classified severe disease, uh, severe COVID differently than the U.S. does. Um, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe in Israel, they classified it based simply upon um, an O2 level. Um, right. You didn't have to be hospitalized or anything like that. Whereas in the U.S., I believe they classified it based upon numerous factors, including hospitalization. So it was a very different definition. And this was pointed out, you know, both the VRPAC meeting and the ASIP meeting. Right. No, that's correct. There's there were definitely a number. I mean, I don't think that's the only difference, too, between um, that people would point out between Israel and the U.S., including kind of how they vaccinated their population and when and percentages of population vaccinated. They basically only used Pfizer there. Right. Um, there's, there, yeah, there's a lot of things to consider, including obviously, you know, Israel is about the size of New Jersey. Right. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's always like one thing to, I think sometimes you have to consider sometimes, I mean, given the, the U.S. Um, is is a very big, complex country, and um, right, a situation in a much smaller, um, much less US, diverse country. Right, country is going to often look a bit different. To me, it's amazing how we managed to, you know, thread all this stuff back to coronavirus, even though, you know, it 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 doesn't always seem so right at the beginning. But uh, it, again, it's another another you know interesting facet to all this. And, you know, something that we're going to, you know, we'll continue to pay attention to as as we get more experience, both with real world data and the booster shots. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. 
Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hops. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>